Dr. Clarence McCartney was a Presbyterian pastor in the early 1900s, and he told a story about a meeting in hell. Uh, Satan called his four leading demons together and commanded them to think up a new lie that would trap more souls. Uh, I have one, one demon said. He said, I'll go to earth and I'll tell people that there is no God. And Satan said, I don't think that'll ever work. People can go around and they can see that there's a God. Another one said, I'll go and tell them that there is no heaven. But Satan rejected this idea. He said, everybody knows that there's life after death and they want to go to heaven. And then a third one said, I'm going to tell them there is no hell. The devil, he said, no, their conscience is going to tell them that there is a hell. So that left the fourth demon. And the fourth demon quietly spoke up and said, I think I've solved your problem. I'm going to go to earth and I'm going to tell them that there is no hurry. No hurry. And it was the fourth demon's suggestion that I think entraps more than any of the other three lies. What excuse, what circumstance, what reason is ever good enough to wait to embrace the gospel or to wait to obey God fully? When faced with conviction and not willing to offer obedience, to wait seems like maybe a a reasonable approach for people. But a delayed answer is a present no when a human stands before a holy God and he refuses to repent. If I possess an item that, let's say, is not mine, and another person asks me for that item, and I say, well, let me think about it, they're not going to be pleased with my answer, right? It's a refusal to give up the item in the present. I have no right or good reason to keep it. Telling God we will wait in our response to him is actually a signal of a foolish heart. This is a scenario we read about in Acts 24. As the Roman governor Felix is confronted by the Apostle Paul. We take up our passage in Acts 24, verse 22. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, when Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. You might remember Lysias is the head of the Roman cohort in Jerusalem, who has Paul sent to Felix in Caesarea to defend a false charge from a band of Jews. Our passage tells us that Felix had a a familiarity with Christians. This was probably due to his wife, uh, Drusilla, who was a daughter of Herod Agrippa I and a sister of Herod Agrippa II. Drusilla had a Jewish background, and this gave her a, uh, a head start in understanding Christians, and particularly Jesus. Now, by Felix having an accurate knowledge means that Felix could clearly see that Paul's charges that the Jews were bringing against him were bogus. And yet he was politically motivated to favor the Jews. So he felt stuck. 
Delaying um, or putting off a decision would buy him time and stave off some political enemies. And so he uses a future visit by Lysias as the excuse for waiting. But the fact is, there is no political record that Lysias ever visited Caesarea. Felix already had a letter in his hand from Lysias giving his opinion that these capital crimes were bogus. So waiting for Lysias was more of a smokescreen. Verse 23, then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but gave some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. Verse 23 is essentially a description of a house arrest. Paul has freedoms, uh, people have access to him, but a centurion is charged with the job of keeping an eye on Paul. This was not an unusual situation, especially for Roman citizens. Verse 24 and 25 say, after some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control in the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. So at the bequest of Felix, Paul converses with him and his wife about faith in Christ. This was at least an initial interest that Felix had, but it ended up in a, you know, don't call me, I'll call you delay. Now, we can understand why Felix did not want to talk to Paul when we look at the subject matter. Like a good evangelist, Paul first seeks to convince Felix and Drusilla of the reality of sin and their need of a Savior. So he pointed the finger at how woefully short they were of God's righteousness. Now, we have in previous messages established that Felix had a regime marked by injustice and greed. And as a couple, they were led by their own desires. They lacked self-control, and they really had no thought of ruining marriages. Felix was previously married to the granddaughter of Antony and Cleopatra. This would have been his third marriage for Felix and the second for Drusilla. She was first married when she was 14. She was 16 when Felix lured her away from her then-husband by a magician. But no magic trick could rid them both from the conviction that God had put on their life. At this point, instead of repenting, Felix thought distancing himself from the preacher would cause his conviction to go away. And our passage says that he was alarmed. Uh, that's a Greek word that actually means to, to be very afraid, to have an intense feeling of desperation when he heard this message from the Apostle Paul. And I think it's at this point we see the root of the problem. It's not that Felix, or we could say any other man, has a lack of information it's not that they weren't aware of arguments about God. It's not 
the question is that how evolution overrides in their minds a certain philosophy that goes against Christian theism. Now, I'm not denying the reality of these intellectual roadblocks, but what I'm saying is that that's not the core issue. The core issue is that human beings are refusing to bow their knee before a holy God. You see, the root problem is a matter of the will. Paul wrote, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's in Philippians 2. There will come a time when all will bend a knee before God and acknowledge that he is Lord. We can do that now in this present life, or we can do it in a coming judgment. You know, here on earth there are people, including those who call themselves Christians, who refuse to acknowledge their sin. They refuse to acknowledge that God is right in his judgment. It's why I think men and women run from the church to a large degree. Pollsters tell you the church doesn't have enough relevance, doesn't have enough authenticity. Um, It's too much show. The Bible is too harsh, blah, 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 right? Again, I'm not denying that these things exist. I'm just saying they're not the foundational reason that people leave community, why they don't serve, why they don't live a life of obedience. See, that's a human problem. That is sinful rebellion. It's a matter of the will. We want to blame other entities. But in the end, each of us are responsible for our own choices. You know, a thief can blame his parents. He can blame society that caused him to steal. But I think all of us have enough moral sense to know that those choices that a thief makes, he's responsible for that. In the same way, a Christian is responsible for their choices. A person is responsible for their rejection of the gospel. You know, I think a church can and should do all it can to be authentic and fix their issues, but fixing those things does not change the human heart. It is the gospel of God and the interaction of every believer with God and with his word that brings conviction, repentance, and transformation. You know, many a pastor in today's postmodern landscape blame you know, the, the old, conventional, judgmental, fundamentalist church for why people are rejecting God. And they, they try to fashion a modern Bible with no judgment. There's social action to give people a sense of goodness. And the result is a church that is void of the gospel, that is void of the clear Plain teaching of the word of God, void of true spiritual transformation. You can get 
social window dressing and self-congratulations for a self-styled spirituality. But that is much different than an individual coming to grips with his or her sin, falling before a holy God, confessing their sin, and realizing their desperate need of the gospel. Felix did not want his morals meddled with or his motives questioned. You know, we are constantly faced with the idea that tolerance is the ultimate value that we should let others live and do what they want and accept them and their lifestyles. Well, I would say that's half right. I think we should love everyone despite their lifestyle, their sin. We treat them as adults. We love them. However, there is still a need for every human being to repent of their sin and acknowledge the life-saving work of Jesus Christ, and then live in submission to a holy God. Any Christian work that denies these basics is Christian in name only. I realize that today sin is taboo. The vocabulary today is more about mistakes, weaknesses, inherited tendencies, faults, errors, but we do not face up to the fact of that three little word that the Bible calls sin, that there is a moral egregiousness that we commit, that, that we cross a line, that, that we break God's command. Every person, except for Christ, sin is a fact. Yet as Paul conveyed, a holy God demands righteousness And his demands reveal our sin. That was one of the purposes of the law. That's the bad news. But here's the good news. That that same holy God provides his own righteousness through the finished work of Jesus Christ. So we all have a choice. But many Christians are suffering. Even though they're a Christian, they've accepted Christ, they're still suffering from the sin of delay. They think being indecisive buys them time fades the heat from the conviction. But their delay to tomorrow is a no today. There's always a next step of growth in fellowship with Christ. There's always something we can do today to grow. Today, restitution and reconciliation is required. Today, obedience is demanded. The prophet Joel described life as a valley of decision. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. What is your decision today? You know, if this pandemic has taught us anything, It is our old fallbacks of maybe an economy, entertainment, and sports can change in the blink of an eye. Now, some call this as a sign of the end of the world at hand. Perhaps this is more of just a test run of what life is like when we are disrupted 
And then it reveals the source of our trust. We must make a decision that we don't trust Trump or our 401k for our sense of security and shield. The psalmist said, the Lord is my strength, my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my shield, my salvation, my stronghold. Etienne de Grilla, a French missionary from 150 years ago, said, I shall pass through this world but once. If therefore there be any kindness I can show or any good I can do, let me do it now. Let me not defer it or neglect it, for I shall not pass this way again. My dear friends, it is not enough to know the facts about Christ. It is not enough to have an emotional response to a message. Obviously, there's nothing wrong with facts about Christ. There's nothing wrong with having an emotional response to a message. I'm merely saying that does not equal repentance. That does not equal obedience. We still have to exhibit trust in the Savior. We still have to repent of our sin and obey God. Jesus said in John 5.40, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. It's not enough to have our minds enlightened. It's not enough to have our emotions stirred if our will does not bend to him. True spirituality is ultimately measured by the lives of believers who are saying yes to the will of Christ in a marriage in money, with their temper, with humility, with their children, with forgiveness to those who hurt them. I think it's why it's dangerous to grade Christians simply in a small window of a Sunday morning worship or some type of theology on the Holy Spirit and label it as spirit-led. Why is that? Because I think it's very likely that you might have a man who is regularly a horse's rear to his uh, wife and his family at home and raises his hands at church, has the right theology. Everybody sees him as spiritual. He gets reaffirmed as spiritual, but it's a sham. Being spiritual is having your will bend to the Savior in matters where the Spirit of God has taken the Word of God and shed light. Now, the perfect package would be the man who worships well, worships exuberantly, and continues to be obedient and strives for consistency in the areas outside the building. That would be a great package. Such a man is humble, admits wrong. He is not entrenched in an arrogant demagoguery about Jesus. Felix went to the point of bending his will to Christ and said, not for me. Many Christians feign church life, but in the real world, they have a host of items that they claim they are waiting. And they are in effect saying, 
no to God now. Paul wrote elsewhere, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. At the same time, he hoped that money will be given him by Paul. That's verse 26. So he sent him often and conversed with him. And then verse 27, when two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. So to placate the Jews, Felix left Paul in prison even though he knew Paul was innocent. Felix played the delay game for two years with Paul until Felix was replaced. I mean, he feared what Paul had to say. But in the end, greed, lust, and his desire to preserve his power carried the day. He was not driven by principle. He was not driven by justice. Ultimately, Felix took the politically safe way out, and he kept Paul in prison. Did you notice how he hoped that money would be given? Felix did from Paul. You know, it wasn't common for government officials to take money for the release of prisoners. Though it was against the law, many did it. So it was so widespread, it was difficult to monitor. This money issue may have exacerbated Paul's arrest as Felix was waiting to be paid off. And I think that faces us with a scenario of whether money is king in our life. I'm not talking about having money. I'm not even talking about having a lot of money. All of us use money, and most of us like money, right? But what is driving the train? What is driving our church? Money drove Felix. He wanted money more than the truth. He wanted money more than the freedom from his own sin. You know, look at it this way. Suppose that you buy shares from Apple. What happens? You suddenly develop an interest in how many iPads and Macs are sold. You check the financial pages. You see a magazine article about Apple and you read every word, even though a month ago you may have passed over it. Say that you're giving money to African children with AIDS. When you see an article on the subject, you're hooked. Or if you're spending money to plant churches in Haiti and an earthquake hits Haiti, you watch the news and you fervently pray. Perhaps you're sitting here and you're wondering, how can I care about eternal things? How can I care more about the kingdom of God? Then relocate some of your money, a lot of your money, from temporal things to eternal things. Put your resources, your assets, your money and possessions, your time and talents and your energies into the things of God and watch what happens. And as surely as a compass needle follows north, your heart will follow your treasure and money leads the way. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Those are the words of Jesus. Would you join with me in prayer?